0: And welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective. This is a podcast where I shake every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out, are they the greatest film family of all time? Last week, we shook the branch of Armageddon. This week, we are looking at the Patricia Arquette-starring flirting with disaster from 1996 and to join me this week i have james hancock from geeking out on youtube and the wrong real podcast as always we will get into this film to the nitty gritties we will talk about every joke that goes throughout this film every twist and turn that this story may take so please be aware that there'll be spoilers a plenty if you haven't seen this film and would like to see it be sure to check the show notes where there'll be a handy document to show you if and where this film is streaming if you enjoy my chat with james be sure to check out the patreon page where we have an extra little bonus chat all about the man that started this podcast nicholas cage and you can find that as easily by going over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod So it's time to pack your bags, make a cross-country adventure to find your parents as we make some Coppola Connections. In
1: 1996, the Coppola
0: family were very busy. John Swartzman lends Mr. Wrong. His sister Stephanie was an art department coordinator on the Birdcage star and Robin Williams. Francis Ford Coppola also worked with Williams that year in a film about a kid who grows up at an extreme rate. Somewhat a comedy, what some would say. Of course, I'm talking about Jack. And riding high on the highs of his best, uh, best actor. Let me, sorry, I'm just going to back up a second. <laughs> riding high after his best actor win at the Academy Awards for Leaving Las Vegas. Nicolas Cage starred in The Rock. Our focus, however, for this week is a screwball comedy about identity, fidelity, and family. With David O. Russell's second directorial uh, effort, Flirting with Disaster. Boasting an all star cast, including Ben Stiller, Lily Tomlin, George Siegel, Tia Leone, Mary Tyler Moore, Alan Alda, Richard Jenkins, Josh Brolin, and our coppola connection for today, Patricia Arquette. To help me in the search for Mel Copeland's real parents and look for some couple of connections along the way is a wrong real podcast host, YouTube presenter, film producer, and self-confessed film geek, James Hancock. How are you, James?
1: I'm very, very well. Thank you for the invite. I'm thrilled to be discussing the the Coppola I guess, empire at this point <laughs> now that it's uh, several generations deep. The dynasty,
0: yeah. It's that thing when you when you realize where the kind of spider's web goes As I spoke to some people who go like you mentioned like the the Schwartzman connection and they're like what the fuck like how where does that come into it and I, I kind of uh, I feel like by the end of it I'm going to have a lot of uh, a lot of pins and a lot of string Yeah, you're going gonna, it's going different... to get
1: very conspiratorial <laughs> <laughs> It comes through the spider web of connectivity between all the various endeavors
0: um, so first question, is it Coppola or Coppola? How how do you pronounce it? I've always pronounced
1: it Coppola. I will not claim that it's correct. My knowledge of Italian is non-existent. And even if I, I imagine because it's mostly an American family at this point, perhaps even they mispronounce it. So <laughs> I, I've said I've been saying Coppola for 25 years at this point, but I've heard plenty of people say Coppola as well. And the honest answer is I don't know what's the right or wrong way. So when did you first become
0: aware of them as a family? What was your entry point, whether it's a certain I'd seen a lot of
1: their movies going back to my childhood before I even knew who any of them were. I mean, I was born in 76, so on HBO as a kid, I would just stumble into their movies, things like The Outsiders, Peggy Sue Got Married, Tucker, A Man in His Dream, And then I caught uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in the theater. But then when I got to college, one of my closest friends introduced me to the Godfather films and Apocalypse Now. And my first film class, we watched The Conversation. So it was my first year at the University of Virginia when I was 19, where suddenly I realized, oh, Francis Ford Coppola, not only is he a great filmmaker, but in the 70s, he was kind of the filmmaker. And then from there, obviously I started learning about his connection to Nicolas Cage and Sophia Coppola and so on and so forth. So yeah, it really was the mid nineties where I became aware of just how vast and just how creative and just how, like how deep the, the, the bench of talent is within their family.
0: Do you have a particular well well we'll get to that a bit later actually i'm not gonna i'm not gonna blow my load uh early by asking who is your favorite member of the couple and of speaking of blowing loads <laughs> am i
1: allowed to express myself in colorful fashion on this podcast or is this a a family friendly show uh
0: this is the furthest thing from family friendly Fantastic. Uh, so yeah you can you can i F use the same joke. approach on wrong reasons. <laughs> um so yeah what would have been the first film that patricia Arquette, obviously she's uh She's one of the ones on this podcast that is somewhat of a... She's getting in on a technicality. That's why I'm only covering the films from 95 to 2002 when she was for all intents and purposes. Gotcha.
1: That's totally fair. Well, the first flick I saw her appear in would have been Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warrior. Saw that in the theater. I was a giant, just Freddy freak. I mean, people forget in the 80s how Freddy for pop culture was as big a celebrity as like... Ronald Reagan or Michael Jackson. I mean, he was everywhere in the 1980s. And I was 10 when I caught Nightmare on Elm Street on HBO when I mean, I just went all in, watched it every time I could. And so when the third one came around, my friends and I were there, maybe not day one, but we were there early to see it. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know who she was by name, but it's impossible to watch that movie and not completely fall under her spell. I mean, she's just such a, an angel in that movie. And then I just kept seeing her pop up in movies from there on, whether you're talking about true romance or whatever. So I became a big fan of her early on. And I guess for me, my I guess my fandom of her probably peaked or crescendoed with Lost Highway by uh, David Lynch. Mm-hmm. But she's yeah, a marvelous actress and obviously still active to this day. And so yeah, when you sent this list of all these couple of films and I saw Flirting with Disaster on there, I was like, how's that connected? And I kind of clicked on <laughs> it. I was like, oh, gotcha, okay. But I was like... I hadn't even thought about this movie like in twenty five years, but I just remember laughing like hell when I saw it, and when I revisited it, right maybe howl all over again. I've been and I've been revisiting certain scenes over and over again over the last couple of days, and I'd just forgotten just how good she is and just how good this movie is. Yeah,
0: it's that thing with this film. Like whilst doing research, there's not a lot about it. Like I just typed in on YouTube, almost nothing. I mean, yeah, yeah, like. If there's any reviews, a lot of it you had to put in film because a lot of it was uh, like uh, there's a few songs with like the title. I think it's like a a Molly Haggart song. There's people like first reactions to that. I was like, no, I want to know about the film. I want to know if anyone's reviewed it. Um, So I guess there's something we possibly should talk about before we get into the film itself, and that is the tragic passing of uh, George Segal just yesterday at the time of recording, which seems... Seems weird. I feel like I'm I'm somewhat cursed by like going. Let's talk about you, this. Are film. you Are you confessing
1: that you killed George Siegel?
0: I did not kill George Segal. <laughs> that is, that's not what happened.
1: Yeah, I, I love George Siegel. I guess the first time I ever saw him was when I was uh, in the theater with um, Look Who's Talking, and he didn't necessarily make a huge impact on me then. But as I got into watching old movies in college, then I'd see him in things like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? and I was like, Oh shit! Like this guy, he's really good, and he's just got this enormous career going all the way back to 1960. I'm looking at his IMDb page right now, and he always he always brought his A-game. He was always funny as hell. He was always charming as hell and can play genuinely neurotic, as we see in Flirting with Disaster, but man, he's just one of those actors who probably, at one time or another, met everybody, worked with everybody, got along with everybody, and just seemed like a, a delightful fellow in so many ways, and I just love how he's a true working actor love staying busy and just in, accumulated this giant body of work and like, you know, funny stuff like the Larry Sanders show and things like that. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm a George Siegel fanatic, but he's always, it's always great to see him whenever he pops up in anything.
0: Yeah. For me, it's one of, he's one of those actors that are kind of like, how did like, I don't know. I think I, at some point I got him confused with Elliot Gould because they very much have that, like... <laughs> they, they have that similar energy, and it feels like they kind of, like, walk
1: that tightrope, and I guess that... And they both like, came of age at a similar time. They're roughly similar in age, so... Yeah,
0: so they're both in California Split, the Altman film, and then kind of then had runs in, like, 90s sitcoms as well, whether it's Just Shoot Me or, or Friends, and it's kind of... You can very much see an element of... Uh, Monica and uh, Ross's. Now I'm dad. seeing
1: here uh, George Eagles from Long Island. Is Elliot Gould a New Yorker as well, or where where was he from originally?
0: Elliot Gould, um, I'm not too... They might have
1: that. I mean, it, it might Have a similar kind of New York energy. Uh, Elliot Gould is from yeah, in Brooklyn. So yeah, once again, two yeah. guys similar age. <laughs> they both got that New York vibes. So yeah, that's uh, they they probably who who knows they probably were good pals. But yeah. I, I honestly don't know.
0: <laughs> but they have, they kind of have that like energy about them, especially like uh, George Siegel's character in Floating with Disaster. Yeah, is is very much like Elliot Gould's in Friends, that kind of neurotic dad, kind of like worrying about everything and this, uh, especially playing against... Uh,
1: uh, yeah, if David Russell had cast Elliot Gould in the same part, he would have crushed it and done yes, just fine. exactly, yeah, so it, exactly. People like us who are adopted often have to face a lot of unresolved identity issues. Mel
0: and Nancy had a typical marriage.
1: Do you think we're ever gonna have sex? Definitely.
0: Until he made a decision. Aren't
1: we good enough parents?
0: This is about my real
1: identity. It's about my
0: background. To find
1: who his real
0: parents are. I'm Tina Kelb. Tina is with the adoption agency where you adopted me. Why does he have to do this? Roots thing. Go to San Diego in the morning. You are aware that they have a very big car theft problem in San Diego. They bump you, and when you
1: stop, they mutilate you and then take your car.
0: It happened to Art Sackheart. The mystery of your unknown self is about to unfold.
1: Hi. Hi. Hi! This is your half brother man. Oh man.
0: Tina says that most women who gave up their children for adoption in the 60s were independent re-thinkers. You're saying I was a slut? No, not your mother now. Of course she's my mother. We have the same forehead.
1: How could you make a mistake like that? Oh my god. The bump and My god, Jack! Look at this bitch. This is my son.
0: Uh-huh. I always wanted to learn how to drive a big rig. Drive <laughs>
1: Films presents. You thought this Fritz Boudreaux was your father, but in fact, he's not your father.
0: The story of how one man went searching for his roots. This
1: is not the way I planned this trip. Well, I think you're doing a great job.
0: And got tangled up along the way. Which one of you is Mel? Me. Is that Tyrant, your mother? Saying you're not sure if you're my father?
1: Who is this man? He called us his parents. I think it might be easier at this point just to find an intelligent man to impregnate me. You're attracted to her, aren't you? No. Mm. Is there something happening here that I haven't included into yet? La, la,
0: la. Oh my God. Oh my God. Ben Stiller, Patricia Arquette, Taya Leone, George Siegel, Lily Tomlin, Alan Alda, and Mary Tyler Moore. Kind of remind me of my mother. Ow! Flirting with disaster. I want you to consider my age and ask yourself how I make it. Mom, why are you doing this? What is your relationship with this film? When would you have seen it in the theater? Would you have seen it at home? Like, were you a were you a David O. fan beforehand?
1: I became a David O. Russell fan, like fan fan. Probably he had that incredible hot streak when he did The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, and American Hustle all in a row, mm-hmm. just boom, 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 back to back with very little time in between. And I was like, oh my god, this guy's just he's on fire. But I, I entered college in 1995, and it was a perfect time to fall in love with movies because. The indie film scene was suddenly exploding and kind of tr- transforming into big business. And the, the New York film scene, the L.A. film scene, you just had so many giants emerging, like whether you're talking Hal Hartley or whomever. And David a. Russell is one of those indie kind of guys, who uh, a mini who became a major. And Spank and the Monkey was a big deal. Floating with Disaster was a little bit bigger. And then by the time you get to 99, he's doing things like Three Kings and working with big movie stars. And he just kept making big seismic jumps with his career every step of the way. And so I definitely associate him with the the indie film scene of the 1990s. And he's just one of those guys who happened to survive the transition where the indie film scene really doesn't even exist in the the, the traditional sense anymore. But I know he's getting back in action now. For whatever reason, it's been sadly— Kind of inactive the last couple of years. And I didn't see Joy. I don't even know why I didn't see it because I'd loved his previous three films so much. But I know he's getting back in action now. So yeah, I think David A. Russell is all the talent in the world and loves cinema, loves film history. And I'm, I'm, I'll am I'm be I'll, I'll be rooting for his comeback all the way. It was, yeah, with Disaster. I did not see it in the theater, caught it either on VHS or DVD and just screamed with laughter. Tia Leone or Tia Leone, I'm never quite sure how to say her first name, <laughs> has this marvelous nervous energy and she's so physical and so sexy and just she kind of steals the movie in a lot of ways or at least for mm-hmm. like the first two-thirds and she's stealing the movie away from mary tyler moore and from ben stiller and all these these giants who are really experienced with comedy and i never really thought of taylor leone as like a comedic actress but holy cow in this movie she just absolutely mops the floor with her entire uh supporting cast
0: yeah she's she's like She's great and obviously like I, I have a soft spot for her from being in The Family Man with Nick Cage gotcha. years later as well. There's like that. Um But yeah, I, I'd never really seen uh, Tia Leone in too much stuff and like even looking for her IMDB, there's like she's not got like a, a swath of credits like a lot of the other people in this um in this film do. And um well, yeah, before before we get too deep into chatting about like kind of our love for certain actors and stuff like that could you by any chance like
1: tell us what this film is about flirting with disaster (laughs) i'm almost hesitant to describe it this way because it's a term that sometimes gets overused these days but it actually is as you mentioned before it's a a movie about identity and it's a quest for identity ben stiller he's he was adopted he's a new yorker he's a neurotic new New yorker and he's got all these issues like he's got issues about oral sex, he's got issues about naming his child, he's, got, he's just got all these unresolved questions, and he feels as if if he could just find his parents, that mm-hmm. the whole world would make sense, and that he'd be able to move on with his life and be a family man, so on and so forth. And you know, he's got these crazy parents, played by George Siegel and uh, Mary Tyler Moore, and this lovely wife, played by Patricia Arquette, and, uh, a newborn baby but he goes through this agency that's gonna connect him with his roots. And so Leonie has the idea of documenting, she's trying to get her doctorate, so she wants to document the whole process of him reconnecting, and they go on this road trip, but because she's kind of inexperienced and kind of neurotic in her own way, she she and the agency make a few mistakes, so they keep kind of going down the wrong path and meeting all these wild eccentric characters before finally landing on his actual uh, birth parents and it's just yeah, a comedy of errors every step of the way. And their group keeps growing and getting bigger as they go, which is I feel like always a great part of a good road trip movie where you start with one or two people. And by the end, you've got this you know, madcap family of like seven or eight people just getting into all sorts of strange adventures. And every time they meet a new crew, like Josh Brolin's so good. Richard Jenkins is so good. Lily Tomlin's so good. Everybody's completely insane in this movie. And I just, yeah, I, I laugh my ass off basically from start to finish
0: yeah there's something really interesting and it's like kind of like looking back now so there's an interview with david o russell from the time and he kind of describes well what the what the media were describing his films as so they kind of said like he was roman polanski with his first film and woody allen with flirting with disaster obviously looking back from 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 with modern eyes it's like probably not the best two people to be likened
1: to. (laughs) But in the 90s, nobody... uh, Let's let's put it this way. In the 90s, obviously, people were aware. Nothing's changed for Woody Allen or Roman Polanski in terms of what they've done since the 90s, but it's just the way people look at those events has changed. People look at it in a different lens. But in the 90s, it was not controversial at all to constantly talk about and celebrate the films of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. It wasn't even that controversial up until a couple of years ago so i came of age at a time where roman polanski and woody allen were considered like you know giants of cinema so yep. that was a very flattering praise at the time making those comparisons and and obviously you
0: can see that like in this film like ben stiller is almost like that kind of woody allen archetype in this absolutely, like, just drenched in neurosis he's he's a new yorker he's like got all these worries even the way he holds himself he's like very hunched and it's almost like um, i don't know you get these glimpses of the Ben Stiller that we kind of like would get to know
1: over the next like... Yeah, I mean, this is before the Something About Mary. And I feel like the yes. Something About Mary really made him explode. I mean, he'd had the Ben Stiller show mm-hmm. and he would pop up in things like uh, like Happy Gilmore and things like that. But it wasn't until the Something About Mary, which was a monster hit, either summer 97 or 98. I can't remember which summer. But from that point on, he was doing giant movies like Meet the Parents or Tropic Thunder or whatever. He became like big blockbuster business flirting with disaster where he's still kind of on the fringes of showbiz about to pop. And then you can, you can see he's got all the star power in the world at this point. And he could have easily probably written and directed this himself, I man. This is the same year where he directed cable guy. So yeah. Ben Stiller was already off to the races as a filmmaker. Cause you kind of get that really fascinating
0: and interesting thing. Cause you get like, especially those earlier roles, whether it is um happy Gilmore or even the heavyweights, he's kind of got this like, anger to him he played like a lot of like kind of like and and he brings you can have a
1: glass of shut the hell up yeah
0: (laughs) he brings that to the character of mel he kind of has that like i don't know broiling like bubbling anger at all, all times but then you kind of get that like yeah lovable guy and this this is almost like a blueprint for meet the parents instead of that is find the parents somewhat. Yeah, like. <laughs> this is a, definitely
1: a warm up. And I would say between meet the parents and this, my taste goes more towards flirting with disaster than meet yes. the parents. Meet the parents got a little more broad. I mean, those movies made hundreds of millions of dollars. So obviously if you want to uh, follow my advice, you will make far less money, but I enjoy the the edginess of the humor and I enjoy the adult Frank sexuality of this, just like the, the sexual tension between him and Tia Leone is so amazing right from the word go. I love the fact that he's missed date night. He comes home, Patricia Arquette's trying to get it on with him. And he's trying to hide the fact that this, this person he's working with is in the living room. And Patricia Arquette's trying to like go down on him while he's holding the baby. And finally he admits (laughs) that he not only has found his parents, but that someone's going to help him meet them. And they're actually in the living room. And Patricia's like, they're, they're in our home right now. (laughs) (laughs) And they go out and start talking to her. But there's, Just from the moment Tia Leone mentions that she used to be a dancer, you can just tell Ben Stiller's got the hots for her. And then there's this great bit where the camera gets jammed when they meet the first person they presume to be his mother. They're mm-hmm. trying to dig something out and they're using her skirt to do so and it gets stuck. And as he yanks the camera up, her skirt comes up and then they go into a conversation about her legs and how muscular and strong she is, which then transitions into this game of Indian wrestling where you're uh, basically fighting to see who's going to lose their balance first. And it's just, yeah, you know, I-, I love movies where the sexual tension just keeps building and building and building. And inevitably, once they finally, it gets unleashed, I Matteo mean, Leone just like, Throws her leg around him like a boa constrictor, and anyway, it's fabulous stuff. <laughs> yeah, because that kind of like it's in, yeah, it's
0: the B and B right when they kind of find the tension finally breaks and yeah,
1: they bump into each other in the hallway when he's in his underwear and a T-shirt, and she's kind of sobbing about how this whole mission or this whole this whole documentary is kind of coming unspooled, and uh, they kind of kiss each other goodnight, and then just boom, they just collide and get it I and mean, it's only for a couple of seconds and of course like they're knocking over tables and lamps and ben stiller tries to walk back into the room he's sharing with his wife and trying to hide the fact that he's got this giant erection he untucks his shirt uh t-shirt and she's like like who's pitching a tent like <laughs> he's like i'm just i'm feeling really sexual and you know anyway it's just awesome well that 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 moment like i think i guess it's that
0: thing because for me this was the first time watch like what oh gotcha this, very for cool this podcast and there's obviously like I was kind of watching it with like two sides of my brain almost like going like trying to look at it in context of like 1996 because I think that's what you should do with films obviously look at them in the context they were made but then obviously there's that like niggling thing of looking at it like post me too and kind of like post the treatment
1: like do you mean like okay I'm gonna get in trouble for talking about this yeah
0: (laughs) well no no just like the equality of like and just kind of like stuff that like through a like a modern lens like yeah what like how would that look like would that be presented on screen today and it's kind of like that thing of like the way it'd be a very different thing yes because he kind of like comes in he's like trying to like say he's like but then you kind of like i don't know you get those elements of sadness because like she kind of like sees through his bullshit
1: straight away and is like well look at me and like i think i don't know She's being very patient to even go on this kind of yes. ill-conceived mission where she, <laughs> he should basically just grow up, name the child, and get over all the issues. But she's trying to help him pro- go through this process. But I guess, yeah, if you were to make this movie today, it would probably be dead on arrival because I think as a result of people trying so hard not to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, it's almost made this kind of New York edgy style of comedy – impossible and part of like the New York edgy style of comedy I, mean, I go to comedy clubs in New York you know prior to COVID I go to them all the time there's an intensity to them as an in-your-face quality and a lot of New York filmmakers have exhibited those qualities over the years and the, the comedy 100% reflects that and it would be very very hard unless you're going to do it on a very small budget and just say consequences be damned criticism be damned we're just telling our story our way yeah. but yeah I, I can't imagine a movie like Flirting with Disaster emerging in 2021 right now Sadly.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of like because, like, I don't know, the, the character, and it's weirdly progressive, but it's weirdly progressive at the same time because obviously you've got Richard Jenkins and Josh Brolin as this. Yeah, like,
1: absolutely, homosexual. which in 1996 would have been incredibly rare.
0: Yeah, 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 and the, the kind of, I think it was like kind of looking at some background uh, research and like – it was only like that year that in certain states that like gay marriage had become legalized and adoption had become yeah, legalized. by nineteen
1: ninety six standards David o. Russell would be like a card carrying like leftist liberal and you know, <laughs> probably check off all the boxes, but you know people keep changing their their lens mm-hmm. and so it makes things anyway. I I I try always just to enjoy the greatness of film history and not get too preoccupied with like reassessing movies every oh, three yeah. to six months, and so yeah, David Russell is on their side if someone wants to try and cancel this movie for whatever reason, but it just he's on their side by 1996 standards in the context of this film.
0: Yeah, 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 of, of of course. So, um, what are yeah, what are some of the kind of standout scenes for you in this film? I
1: mean, you got to. Josh Brolin licking and smelling the armpit of Patricia Arquette, that's pretty famous. <laughs> where he's got he admits in the movie that he's bisexual and that he's got he, anyway. You can tell he's got still got the hots for this girl he knew in high school, but also wants to have a family with Richard Jenkins, his husband. But he has this, this weird moment where I guess there's a transition to the point where suddenly Josh Brolin and Patricia Arquette are driving in a car and Ben Stiller and Tia Leone in a car, and Richard Jenkins doesn't quite know where he belongs. He feels like he's the fifth wheel, but there's this night where finally the sexual tension spills over for everybody. But then, of course, Mary Tyler Moore, her famous scene where she's lecturing her daughter-in-law about the importance of support and wearing a bra, especially after pregnancy. <laughs> so Mary Tyler Moore thinks she's in her 60s at this point. Yankster showed up, and she's showing how like well-endowed and how firm and fit she is at her age. And, of course, she's a, a legend of American comedy, going back to the Dick Van Dyke show mm. on television in the 1950s. So that's huge. But the Indian wrestling scene probably makes me laugh the hardest. The way Ben Stiller is losing... And then suddenly, and they're kind of like, their faces are close and they're breathing heavily. And suddenly she just goes, Ugh, throws them. <laughs> he goes through all these, like this priceless glass in China. And then the, the mother comes out. She's like, oh, well, you're going to get a pass because you would have done something like this had you grown up in my home. And then her volleyball daughters arrive and they're constantly hitting each other and telling each other the ship. Like they're so physical and so they're so California. So quintessentially. So Ben Stiller, so New York, it's such a great study and contrast between Southern California Mm -hmm. and New York. So I think, yeah, the peak for me is the scene with the mother. Who's got this like deep, strong Southern heritage, which obviously clashes with Patricia Arquette and Ben Stiller who are all in on their New York heritage.
0: I I love the kind of like, well, I, I, I love the Richard Jenkins performance. And I think it's that thing of like, this, this does feel like a kind of blueprint for a lot of the stuff of like, and around this time, I don't know, like one of the last comedies from around this period I, I watched was Trapped in Paradise. And it's like a, oh, film, gotcha. a film where like Richard Jenkins doesn't get to flex his like comedy muscle. He kind of gets to play it very straight. Whereas in this, he gets to like go. He's hysterical. Yeah, yeah he's great. Like the kind yeah. of like the <laughs> the last third of this film when he's kind of like riding balls on acid. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> he's like, how do you feel? <laughs> vivid, I'm seeing colours I don't want to see.
0: <laughs> and even before that, when like he's kind of like he goes from his introduction when he's like that kind of like really stern but like unsure federal agent when he's like questioning. Uh, Mel about destroying the post office and stuff like that. It's just like he gets so much like, I don't know, comedy to like chew over and really gets to like state himself whenever he's on screen. And then he, he, yeah. when
1: you know you're watching a great comedy when mm-hmm. the director's not afraid to give great lines to the supporting cast. Like Preston Sturgis did this in the 40s where you have these just maniacal casts where anybody from the smallest bit player to the star could have great lines. And that's how Flirting with Disaster is. The entire cast has great beats, great moments, great lines. And it's what makes the movie so enjoyable is that, I mean, a a great ensemble cast should not be in service of one star. They should all be bringing the heat in their own right. And so Richard Jenkins, he just hits home run after home run throughout. So does Josh Brolin. There's not a weak performance in this movie. I have certain characters that I prefer over others just out of personal taste, but it's it's a very deep bench of talent in this movie. I think
0: Glenn Fitzgerald as uh, Lonnie, like the the Shitlings, like other son, is.
1: Well, I, I'm sorry, uh, I'm, I, I didn't quite follow you on that. Uh,
0: uh, Glenn Fitzgerald, who plays Lonnie. the oh, uh,
1: gotcha, gotcha. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: The 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 yeah the 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 Shitlings. I I, I I'm gonna bastardize it like everyone. Yeah, yeah. The well, film. They, there's a
1: great debate as to how to correctly pronounce the uh, the last name <laughs> in the film but like he he's great
0: and he's an actor like i don't i i i I don't think i've ever seen it or like knowingly have seen in anything and like as, as you were saying, he gets to do great. And it's He's like, in
1: the Ice Storm, which came out around the same time. He's mm-hmm. in the Sixth Sense. But this is definitely, um, but I, whenever I see him, I'm kind of, oh, who's like, oh, he's that guy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, but he's, but he's marvelous in this.
0: Yeah. And then like you get D- David Patrick Kelly for a scene. It's, it's like, it's just littered with people. And like for, I don't know, I guess like the average film viewer, it would be like, like, celial uh, westernists. Like, a lot of, like, oh, I, like, I recognise that person from stuff. Uh, but then, like, yeah, the, the principal cast with, like, uh, Josh Brolin and uh, Richard Jenkins, stuff like that. Obviously, people, like, at the time, like, what, Josh Brolin hadn't really...
1: Like yeah, he was not me. Thanos yet. He was not the yes. central villain of the biggest movie franchise in movie <laughs> history. But he's he's on his way there. But I mean, Alan Alda, comedy legend. I mean, yes. going back to to MASH. And then, of course, Lily Tomlin. I mean, you look at all those extraordinary Robert Altman films from the 70s. She was in like Nashville. And so anytime you get Alan Alda and Lily Tomlin in the same room together, working off of each other. I mean, their chemistry, it feels like they've been working together every day for decades. Their chemistry is just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, like uh, I love like, I'm not sure what version like you've seen, but like, because I've read it's not on some, but you get those like check-ins during the credits. Was that on the...
1: Oh, uh, yeah, I got the little post-credit stingers. Yeah, those were all... On, I watched it on Amazon, <laughs> and I can't remember when I first saw in the 90s if those were there or not, but I love those little post-credit stingers, especially like Tia Leone, who's now pregnant, who's uh, on the phone with her mother, and her mother's like, are you smoking? And she does this little gesture where she kind of opens her mouth to let the smoke out without blowing it, which is a, just a great little beat. But once again that's what makes her so great. And this is that all these like spontaneous, unpredictable little personality quirks that she exhibits throughout. And that, and it's what makes Ben Stiller say to her, well, you kind of remind me of my mom, or your nervous energy, which makes her smack. I and mean, that's when they finally realize they're not going to be right for each other. She's like, oh, and by the way, you don't make enough money for me anyway. <laughs> it's just ruthless. <laughs>
0: um, so, Yeah, like, uh, what other, like, I'm trying to think of, like, other, well, there there are plenty of, like, because this film just doesn't really, like, let up
1: in kind of, like, it's just barreling forward. uh, uh, And it's short. It's only, what, like, 92 minutes or so, or, yeah, yes, 92 minutes. It's... People forget or have forgotten the art of the short, concise, economical story. And David a. Russell understands it, but for whatever reason now, again, like Hollywood, they're always telling, oh, you know, your screenplay needs to be 125 or 130 pages, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, no one will ever complain about a movie being too short. And if they think it's too short, they'll just watch it again. But plenty of people will complain if your movie is too long. And also, from an economical standpoint, if your movie's short, you can probably squeeze in another showing per day, which is great for the theaters, it's great for the people who made the movie. And I, I, I'm a massive fan of, uh, it's like the you mentioned Woody Allen earlier, he had this great line where he says, I can improve any movie sight unseen, make it shorter. And <laughs> yeah, a, a 92 minute movie, no one, no one will ever complain about, it, 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 people will only complain if they feel like um, you know, their butt's getting sore from sitting in the seat too long.
0: Yeah, and it kind of like, it just, it's like, I don't know, you and, and the nature of the film as well, just kind of that kind of road trip aspect of it makes it makes it feel like it's even shorter, because it's like...
1: I, you're always moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're,
0: always, you're always moving, you're always like, it's what, like every 10 minutes or so, you kind of get these set pieces, and it's like, we're introduced to a new character, and it's like right up until yep. the end, and it's... And like you said with... Um, lily tomlin and alan alder like even though they're not they're not in it until like what like the last half hour if that like 20 minutes you get that sense of who they are straight away and it's down to the writing in this film. like everyone who's introduced like uh, well like david patrick kelly you kind of get oh, he's a bit of a scumbag because <laughs> they've turned up he's trying to beat the shit out of them. But like everyone who's introduced, even it up until that late stage, you...
1: Well, forget- also, I love it. You, this building tension where these are aging hippies who used to make LSD back in the 60s and went to went to jail. And they're now basically living off the reservation. They yeah. have not let go of any of their kind of belief system from that period. But you also know that Richard Jenkins in spite of the fact that he's in a a gay relationship, like he's also kind of one of those classic stern kind of right-wing reactionary law and order kind of guys. And like, well shit, inevitably something's going to happen where he realizes that he's like, he's uh, walking into like an LSD den. And when he finally, he's completely hallucinating out of his mind, pulling out the gun, trying to arrest him. It's like, it's that you feel like the movie's going to tear itself apart at the seams. And it's just, it's delightful to watch.
0: I love like, I get, yeah, I guess it's that thing that like, it, and it reminds me of like, kind of just like older comedies and that. And it's that thing, like obviously on a script, like why she could be like, oh, it's quite contrived and that where it's like the car's pulling up, they're getting into the wrong car and stuff like that. But all of that stuff is fun. And this film very much, it, it has like an element of being like an old, like yeah, sneeze. late
1: thirties, early forties, stuff like my man Godfrey yeah. by Gregory LaCava or movies like Palm Beach story by Preston Sturgis, that frantic energy, That is, I mean, you know when you see it, but a screwball comedy is a very specific energy and usually very fast dialogue, completely insane characters. And you're not looking for plausibility. You're not looking for (laughs) like gritty realism. You're just looking for laughter, pound for pound. Like how much do you laugh? And I guess uh, one of your famous uh, homebrew critics, Mark Kermit always says, you know, you've seen a great comedy when it passes the six laugh test where you laugh involuntarily six times because laughter is an involuntary thing. You don't say, oh, LOL. Like it just bursts <laughs> forth from you, and I this movie passes the sixth laugh test like in the first ten minutes. Yeah, 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 and it's it's got like a very sweet nature
0: to it as well, and like it's um, I I I, lo- I love that kind of title sequence, the the introduction to Patricia Arquette, and I think like with what she gets in this film, like she she does so like so much with it, and she she mentioned in an interview I think from two thousand and fifteen that like the the armpit licking was was her idea she said that uh, oh nice excellent
1: <laughs> well she's playing the straight man in this movie yeah. where she's surrounded by all these maniacs she's the most rational of them all and sometimes he's it's like being zeppo marx in a marx brothers movie it's like oh would you sometimes being the straight man is tough or what are you talking about um like abbott and castello like lou abbott was a straight man and castello gets to do all the funny bits but i feel like if you were to say if any of the parts are underwritten. You could perhaps say hers. However, as you mentioned, she elevates the role and makes it her own. And I think she absolutely brings it. And she br- you need somebody in there who's just going to remind you that this is a movie about commitment and love and family. And she absolutely nails it considering the material that she's given. And she gets to lash out here and there when she starts saying Ben Stiller's being an asshole and she insists upon getting out of the truck. And of course she's right because he backs up into a post office. But <laughs> when they finally arrive at his parents' house and she's like, fuck you and she goes upstairs (laughs) like she's saying what every what probably should have been said to him from from the word go he's being an asshole
0: well it's that thing sometimes the audience need like a kind of uh a surrogate in in a film and she very much is that and there are moments in it when she's almost like she will openly laugh at what is going on whether it's the kind of like uh bump and grab like that that george Siegel's characters told him about and there's that great scene with the the guy from the like church group who's trying to give back the jacket and she just starts bursting out laughing in the back of the car and it's like you you, yeah you need someone who's in amongst this madness to just go this is fucking crazy
1: like yeah this uh... is this is just bonkers yeah
0: (laughs) but i think she's like wonderfully sweet as well and i think like i love that kind of like that title sequence where we, we, get like the kind of, she's trying to look sexy, but then it's like, she's back to like, I don't know, oh, I'm sorry, Petrus, we're, I'm, like,
1: uh, can you repeat that? I'm getting a little bit of a uh, internet lag and, um, I, I didn't, I didn't hear the last like sentence or two.
0: Yeah, no worries. Um, T- test, like test, test. Can, can you hear me Petrus? Hello? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's saying hello. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, sir. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think we're synced back up now for a second. We had a, a, li- a little bit of lag. Snip, sorry snip. about that.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Um, she's like wonderfully
0: sweet in the role she does, and I think like you get that through that opening like title sequence where we get to. See, yeah, but she's yeah. getting
1: ready for date night, and she's like getting herself all cute. I mean, she's an, an astonishingly beautiful girl, and you're seeing her from behind, getting in her nighty, and uh, but then you see her kind of snacking on the bed. But she's ready for date night. She's she's ready for business time, and yeah, Ben still obviously is distracted. And even before that, you get this great montage of all these really bizarre looking people in the streets of New York about who they are, who they might be, how they might've come together and how whoever we are, whatever we're born into, it's basically cosmic chance or cosmic accident. And I feel like the movie opens up with a really memorable sequence, just sh- showing people walking on the sidewalk in New York and how they may or may not be Ben Stiller's parents. And I think they, it's a very clever opening sequence.
0: Yeah. I like one of the things I like about this film. It very much feels like a director kind of like trying out different things like, cause like, as like it could come across as like a bit disjointed like especially that opening bit it, it seems like something i don't know but it kind of gives you an idea of who he will be like who will become as a director that because that, that like you see you see traces of like silver linings playbook throughout this that kind of like the sweet touch the kind of like uh the the the, the troubled relationship trying to make things work and the kind of eccentric parents and it's I don't like. Well, David O. Russell's a kind of like interesting director, anyway, because you kind of get this like pinball of like I'll I'll do whatever the fuck I want kind of thing. Like I don't know, like Three Kings, from what I remember, is like a bit more of like an action. Like it's got like an action element to it, and like the
1: fighters very much like. Very yeah, it's gritty. hard to pigeonhole him in like in one genre. And he seems yeah. to really enjoy experimenting. Like Three Kings is so different from everything that's come before. And Silver Linings' playbook is so different. The Fighters' so different. He just, he's always reinventing himself and then takes long breaks. And uh, yeah, I, I find him, he's very consistent. Though. I mean, any director who's making good stuff for 20 years or more, that's always a good sign. And Spanking the Monkey, I think it was like 94 or 95. So here we are, we're 25 years in and he's still he's still going strong, so... I think sometimes people sleep on the fact of just how consistent David Russell is. The one movie of his uh, that I've kind of avoided for whatever reason is I Heart Huckabees. I've never heard anybody recommend that one. And I guess at some point I'll have to see it, but I don't know. Have you ever seen I Heart Huckabees?
0: No, but it will be covered on this podcast at some point because it has- Because of Schwartzman? Schwartzman and Talia Shire are both in that film. So,
1: Gotcha. There's, there's right. well, You'll du- let me know how it is. There's
0: a double couple of connection. And I think recently it's been- put on star on disney plus so it's kind of like that thing of like oh, there's 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 no there's there's kind of no more excuses i haven't got kind of got to find an old dvd copy of it floating about or anything like that have you ever That's...
1: seen the behind the scenes viral video from the set of iheart huckabees where lily tomlin and david russell have a fight
0: yes i have oh well i, I rewatched it again like th- this morning and kind of prep for this and it's uh i know that like I, and i guess it's something we kind of should should talk about i know there's like some uh, uh like david o russell has had some some issues as well like there's some problematic stuff.
1: oh i i know he's got a horrible temper but beyond the iheart huckabees i'm not aware of any um what what, what 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 did he get uh in trouble for
0: so during the sony uh like hack there was stuff in regards to um like, complaints about him on American Hustle. I think Amy Adams said, like, uh, his behaviour on set was very, like... She kind of reduced him to, like, tears. Uh, yeah, he, he reduced her to tears, like, most days with his kind of temper. And there was, um... There's, yeah, Though I, I very much implore people listening to kind of, like, uh, look into it. Obviously, I am not... uh very well and i don't know all the ins and outs of this but there's um yeah there's allegations from his uh transgender niece about him like uh, inappropriately touching her and stuff like that so i guess like that kind of like fits up uh, like fits in with that kind of like somewhat break he's had since joy like it would have lined gotcha. up with the kind of okay yeah well, i'll have accent. to do
1: i'll have to do some more digging
0: yeah and and but like 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 hollywood is he, he's still getting another chance and obviously we'll be back with like i think the the cast list for his new film which is just titled david o russell untitled project on imdb at the moment
1: is in yeah, let's s- see, yeah, I'm opening up his page, untitled, and so it's got yeah, Anya Taylor Joy, who I love, Margot Robbie, Zoe Saldana, Christian Bale, yeah, it's a Robert De Niro, Andrea Riseborough, mm-hmm. an insane cast, Rami Malek, John David Washington, oh, I mean, it's Mike, holy crap, yeah, Mike, <laughs> Chris Rock, yeah, it's this is an insane cast. So wh- whatever he may or may not have done in the past, clearly at least these people are overlooking it or have forgiven him. So this is yeah, this is one of the best casts that I, I can, you could possibly imagine.
0: Yeah, it's 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 pretty, it's pretty. I yeah, I, ju- I, ju- I just feel like it kind of it, ha- it had to be mentioned, but obviously, like um, I don't want to come down either way because I don't know. Enough about it to kind of pass. yeah. I'm pretty there.
1: much a, a blank slate on all, all of his uh, on all of his bad behavior. So, uh, but like I said, I've seen the video of him screaming at Lily mm-hmm. Tomlin, so I know he's got a temper. Beyond that, I, I I'm totally in the dark.
0: I guess that's why him and Christian Bale get on so well, right? Like they kind of
1: <laughs> they're... it's fucking distracting. <laughs> yeah, I mean that his, hearing him scream with his Welsh accent on the set of Terminator Salvation, that's one of the one of the all time great meltdowns on any movie set. Yeah, do,
0: do you reckon that is like kind of like I can, I just have this image of like post like post shoot they're kind of like kicking back like uh shooting the shit just going like, a bit.
1: I think it was the first time Americans <laughs> had heard him speak in his Welsh accent. I mean we remember him from Empire of the Sun but I think he was doing a little, little more of an English accent in that. Mm-hmm. And so I think Americans were kind of knocked on knocked flat the fact that, oh this guy's from Wales like and most Americans are like where's Wales? <laughs> 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 Say, yeah, but Christian Bale, I, I love him as well, temper tantrums and all.
0: Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, what are the, the kind of things that like? Yeah, I saw that David O. Russell was saying like his influences for this film were films like Shampoo and Heartbreak
1: Kid. I love Shampoo and, and uh, Heartbreak Kid. I mean, early seventies comedy, mm-hmm. early seventies period. But I mean, Shampoo is one of the best movies about L.A. and about Hollywood ever made. And it really feels like the end of an era, and it has a strange hint of melancholy. But anyone who's not seen it, it is just, yeah, Hal Ashby and Robert Towne and Warren Beatty and Julie Christie just at the absolute peak of their game. I think it's one of the best movies of, like, the new Hollywood. And Heartbreak Kid, funny as hell, Elaine May. People kind of forget about her as a director sometimes because, uh, what was it, um, Ishtar, which totally destroyed her career but prior to ishtar very promising director and heartbreak kid with um charles groden i mean everybody's got to see it. it'll it make you shriek uh, and then obviously
0: like there's that weird connection that ben stiller would then go on to be in the remake of the heartbreak kid like years, years
1: yeah yeah which i did not see very deliberately and very willfully it's like <laughs> I, I mean yeah i mean there are some remakes that are great like john carpenter's the thing or um, yes or brian de palma's scarface or david Cronenberg's the fly so i'm not completely averse to remakes but you got to do something special
0: oh yeah exactly and uh, what do they always say remake a bad film don't remake a good film like or like or Yeah, that's least... fair that's totally fair yeah. <laughs> but um yeah um i Kind of like um, I don't know, like I find I find with this film, it's one that I definitely need to revisit, and it's that thing of like I was kind of like I'm very annoyed because I got a DVD copy of this, which like clearly states on the back of it comes with a director's commentary, and I got like all excited. I was like, I can get like some some tidbits and stuff like that that I can share. Turns out, James that I was duped. There was no director's commentary on this DVD. And yeah,
1: I, I did a little digging, and I realized that there's almost no background info written on this movie at all. So I think it's just one of those movies where you can just enjoy it or not enjoy it or see it or not see it. And just it, it is what it is. It's 92 minutes of madcap energy, and if that sounds like your thing, hunt it down, but it's not regarded as some like major building block of film history or anything like that. I just really love seeing all these interesting voices that emerged from the New York film scene in the nineties where they're talking like, I mean, Abel Farrar had been around longer, but he really was thriving in the nineties. And obviously it's the city of the city Lumet and Woody Allen. But in the nineties you had like Jim Jarmusch firing on all cylinders and Spike Lee. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned before, Hal Hartley and David Russell. Yeah, born and raised in Manhattan. I just love the New York film scene. And I've lived here in New York now for almost 13 years. And while the scene is not what it once was, there's still plenty. I mean, more people go to the movies in New York than in any other city in America. We have more revival houses than any other city in America. This is just a city that loves watching and making movies. And David O. Russell is absolutely a part of that.
0: Yeah. And you can kind of see that. Like there's, well, obviously there's that lineage, like, um, again, somebody who kind of, there are, uh, links somewhat. I'm sure we'll get into a bit later this film, but like, you get like uh, yeah, like a Noah Baumbach who kind of makes these kind of very like New York 100%, yeah. centric, and it kind of Noah feels... Baumbach
1: is absolutely a part of that scene.
0: Yeah, and he's he's very. You can kind of see like shades of David O. Russell in like Noah Baumbach stuff, like maybe I don't
1: know. And they got started around the same time, like Noah Baumbach with kicking and screaming. I think that was what ninety seven or so. So he's just a couple of years behind David O. Russell and launching his own career as a director. And yes, yeah, so I think they might even be relatively close in age. But I think Neil obama's a, a little younger in any of it, but he, they're absolutely part of that same extended family. Movies about relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and I wanted to, yeah, go back to the thing like um in this interview when uh, Patricia Arquette was talking about the armpit thing, and it, I, I kind of like it, it gives. I don't know. It feels like it gives us a bit of context of where she was at, and I kind of like to look at like. If there's things in people's real lives that could have affected their like mentality at the time, and she said like if you go out into the single world, you don't know what you're gonna get into, and like, that's where like, she was like, you might go home and somebody's into ball gags. She's like, that's why I thought like the armpit licking was a was a good idea, and all I can think is like, well, she was married to Nicolas Cage at the time. So there was yeah. probably definitely some odd bit licking going on.
1: I have no idea what he's into sexually, <laughs> but if he were to be into something that's off the beaten path, it would not surprise me, but uh but I but I've no evidence to support or contradict that that idea. But one thing but I I mean he's one of the most unpredictable madcap strange actors of the last couple of decades and I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan, so, but sometimes the people who in the terms of their public persona, have a really wild outlandish quality, they can be a little vanilla behind the scenes. Like porn stars very famously, they'll do all these crazy things on camera, but in their private sex lives, it's a lot of hugging and kissing and missionary and that sort of thing. So who knows? Maybe Nicolas Cage is kind of boring <laughs> and vanilla behind the scenes. You never know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I
0: I would, I I reckon he's probably going in with like dressed like Edgar Allan Poe or something. I I
1: picture him like living in like a German castle, walking around like in a suit of like full plate armor, like wielding like a Zweihander or something like that. Just like, (laughs) you know, welcome to my home. Like, I am Nicolas Cage, just acting like a complete lunatic. That's what I would like to believe.
0: Perfect. So um, let's talk about some couple of connections. Could you find any connections? through, like, the cast or through this film to other members of the Coppola family?
1: Well, Arquette is in True Romance, which also stars Dennis Hopper, who's great in Apocalypse Now and Rumblefish. That was one of the first connections where I was like, all right, so Arquette does have some other connections to the the Coppola, I guess, output or the, uh, the giant, if you were to look at, like, everything the Coppolas do from the time of the 70s onwards as a giant extended family, Dennis Hopper appears to have, he never married into it, but he appears to have at least been on the scene and a good collaborator for uh, for Francis Ford Coppola.
0: Perfect. One of the ones I found is David O. Russell is actually in adaptation. He's like oh, uh, interesting. He's got a cameo, which I guess would have been a favor to Spike Jones after being in three kings you probably would have been like
1: oh, i'm making a movie you <laughs> like yeah i haven't seen adaptation in well over 20 years so i totally forgot i need to revisit that i remember laughing like hell when i saw it i really enjoyed it yeah there's this weird thing that
0: like uh i guess spike jones kind of likes to put other directors in as cameos because there's that great uh david fincher cameo in being john malkovich he kind of like crops up in that uh video at like the kind of like newsreel at the end when they're talking about john malkovich being this amazing puppeteer and like david fincher is a is a talking head during that segment um another yeah another patricia arquette one is obviously she's in bringing out the dead with nick cage in 1999 she was in edward uh which uh stephanie schwartzman was the um part of the like production crew and she's in a glimpse in the mind of charlie swan the third which is directed by roman coppola
1: gotcha the only roman Coppola movie that i've seen what's it called cq his mm-hmm. uh film about making a science fiction film either in france or Italy. really can't quite remember. i saw it in the theater when it came out and um obviously i've seen his some of his collaborations with wes anderson but yeah roman coppola seems to be i guess Less active than Sophia, and obviously less active than uh, than Francis Ford Coppola. and sometimes people will assume oh you're you're inactive because you're just not trying, but sometimes you just are trying to get things going, and you just never find the money just you never get the green light and so who knows maybe behind the scenes he's scribbling away writing lots of scripts i don't know yeah he's he's very much like uh, a producer and uh,
0: i I kind of have this like running joke on the podcast that like he's the he's the middle child who kind of gets like left out of things a lot of the time because like Sophia's got her own like like couple of wine range he hasn't got one and it's kind of like because he hasn't got that Oscar win like Francis is like ah don't worry about Roman like uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave him out we'll get him he
1: can sit on the kids table but um well he's a producer on the French Dispatch the next Wes Anderson flick yeah. and he has uh some writing credits I mean, he worked on Isle of Dogs and he worked on Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. So clearly, and Darjeeling Limited. So clearly Wes Anderson really enjoys working with them. And he's got 53 director credits, most of which are video shorts. But if you've got 53 direct director credits on IMDb, yeah, he's clearly not afraid to uh, get behind the camera.
0: Yeah, and he's got... Um, you'll find a lot of the time as well, he does a lot of second uh, unit stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, so like, I think like... Uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu was doing a lot of like second unit and uh, he does additional uh, uh, footage for Lost in Translation. So like there's these like weird and wonderful kind of like I don't know he's very yeah I I, I think for me like he's one of the most interesting coppers just because like you don't I don't know he hasn't got that much output so he's kind of he's got like two or three films that are Roman Coppola films, and I I guess the most interesting credit he's got is he did the Mariah Carey Christmas special last year for Apple TV+. Plus.
1: Oh, which I
0: didn't even see, so... (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, and and there's this kind of, like, fascinating thing that you've got uh, two, two Coppola children have made Christmas specials, so you have A Very Murray Christmas with Sophia, and then, yeah... A Mariah, And it it just adds to the weird and wonderful thing about that family, whether it's like Francis Ford Coppola doing his kind of run in the 70s, and then you go like, he also did
1: Jack? Or like all these kind of like... That's when I stopped watching his movies. When he made Jack, (laughs) I was like, you know what? I'm out. Like, you're going this direction. You know, I I hope you make piles of money, but I I, I cannot follow you down that path. Yeah,
0: and it's... uh, even like some of the '80s output of his, like uh, Gardens of Stone, it's got kind of thing like. There's films like since uh, digging into like uh, the the family tree and stuff like that. I'm like, I I have never heard about these films, and it's like I I'm worried that it's obviously like not a sign of good things to come. I'm like, there's probably a reason I haven't heard about Gardens of Stone or even uh, Tucker the Man and His Dreams, but. Hey, I'm, I'm a big uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah,
1: Tucker's one of those movies where I wouldn't even say I like it that much, but I just, when I, I'm of the age where you just would watch whatever was on. Like if you yeah. liked HBO, you were just at their mercy. And so I just happened to watch it many times over, even though the subject isn't necessarily one that interests me.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, yeah, is there any other couple of connections you could you could find to James?
1: Uh, that was the only one that immediately jumped out at me in terms of uh, kind of like playing back to bacon in like the six degrees or seven degrees mm-hmm. of, of separation. And I was just kept trying to think of like, who are her interesting co-stars? Think, oh, well, has Christian Slater done anything with like the rest of them? Or has uh, Bill Pullman from Lost Highway? And anyway, so, but the, the Dennis Hopper connection was the most obvious because obviously Dennis Hopper, some people find him really annoying in Apocalypse Now. I, I think it's a great glimpse into who, where he was mentally at, at that mm-hmm. time, and then in Rumblefish, he's kind of graduated to elder statesman at that point, and he's passing the torch to the next generation of people like Mickey Rourke and uh, Matt Dillon, all those people. So yeah, I I really enjoyed Dennis Hopper's association with the uh, the Coppola family, and and obviously he's older than all of them. I mean he's got to start in like Rebel Without a Cause in the late fifties, so he's been ma- he is making movies long before even Francis Ford Coppola started writing things like. was dementia 13 which he directed for um roger Roger corman Corman. Mm -hmm. i think that was his uh directorial debut but that was like 62 or 63 i think
0: yeah i think that's like this uh tonight for sure just before that which was a kind of like russ myers inspired like skin flick where it's like
1: a little nudie cutie
0: yeah where he's like um i think he did like a, a it's a relative like short film that got spliced together with another director's film to create this. Gotcha. With like a, a narrative, a very loose narrative in the middle of like two characters meeting to be like, let's tell each other a story, and then these like short films play out. Um, there are plenty of other copper connections with this film that I will sure like will be putting in the show notes for everyone because otherwise it's just going to be a man reading out a list of so and so worked with so and so. And that's not fun for anyone. Um, so let's talk about scoring this film. The, the scoring uh, on this podcast is very flippant and kind of throwaway. But if you were to pair a wine with this film, James, what wine would you pick?
1: I might be the worst person on the <laughs> internet to ask because my knowledge of my knowledge of wine. It's one of the things, my entire life I've kept saying, I need to learn about wine. And I've dated girls who are really into wine. I have my siblings who are really into wine. I've always been a whiskey man. I love single malt. So I'd probably choose a nice single malt, like something like, you know, like Macallan or Talisker or Lagavulin or Laphroaig. I really enjoy whiskey and wine, I have a, like family dinner or on a date or something like that, but I really can't make a recommendation that would have <laughs> any weight because i'm uh, my my palate is so unsophisticated and so uneducated that i, I I'm, a, I'm a lost i'm a lost cause on that front i'
0: I'll, I'll throw out mine which is just like a kind of a i i'm thinking like a a sparkling light white wine It'll kind of leave you a bit a bit dizzy and a bit giddy uh, which i think this film very much does it's kind of like you want yeah i guess something that makes you bubbles. feel up something yeah, that makes yeah, you feel yeah.
1: giggly yeah like <laughs> champagne would be great something i guess um i i, I lean toward the, like the mean and surly alcohol but in that it is such a light comedy a light wine a light white wine of some kind would probably be very appropriate perfect
0: and how much how much like
1: yeah if this were
0: on a wine list this film how much are you paying for it are you kind of are you, are you looking at the first page where it's uh, the houses or are you turning over to the more expensive stuff?
1: I'm sorry, Petrus, you, uh, you're you uh, you're frozen. Um, I missed the last question. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, yes, I can test, hear test, you. Test. Can you hear uh, me? Test, test, test. Yeah, can you hear me? Can you hear
1: me? James? Uh, it's a li- little um, kind of, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think I can hear you now. Hello, test, hello, test, hello, test. hello. All right, yeah, I can hear you now. So I missed the, uh, the last question, the follow-up question about wine.
0: No worries. Um, so if this film were a wine, I say, are you looking on the cheap list? Is this, is this a house wine, or are we flipping over the page to, to really spend the big bucks on this?
1: That's an interesting question. I guess I'd probably say it's a good local wine. Is it going to be served like in like a... Th- like a like a michelin rated (laughs) restaurant or whatever the case might be like i don't know but if you are in wine country like oh this is one of our good solid local brands and as somebody who lives in new york i feel like david is one of our good solid local filmmakers so you're not going to serve it to the queen of england (laughs) but there are going to be its fans who will go to the mat defending it
0: perfect yeah i definitely think that you'll like uh I do if if you're if you're a fan of this brand of wine, as it were, if you're a fan of like the kind of screwball comedies, you're gonna seek out this bottle of wine. So yeah, it's definitely absolutely. A, it's, and I definitely think there's a the tenement of it being like a somewhat acquired taste to some palates. Agreed. Like, um, yes. Amazing. So,
1: would you recommend people seek out this film if they haven't seen it already? Absolutely. Yeah. If, if especially, I feel like. Over the last 10 years or so, it's probably been the weakest period for comedy and movies. While comedy podcasts and comedy, like in Mm stand-up, you can make a case for having never been better. But in movies, I think it's never been worse. And if you need to be reminded that movies can be funny, surprise, surprise, definitely hunt down flirting with disaster. I miss great comedies. In the 90s, had a lot of edgy, dark comedies. People like... um, uh, Todd Solon's doing things like uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness. I mean, just the 90s was a great time to be young and having a taste for edgy comedy. So I I miss it.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, I I definitely think like this one and the fact that there's not a lot out there, I'm assuming and like when I have put the word out on Twitter and stuff like that for people to kind of like get their opinions. A lot of people haven't really come forward. It feels like it's a, a massively underseen film and i i would i would say see it for kind of like if you've got that fascination like me to kind of see like the seeds of who and who an actor will become i think this is perfect to see that for ben stiller and it's uh i think it's always great to see patricia arquette kind of flexing that that comedy muscle and uh let's be honest like it has to be the best armpit-licking cinema history, right? It is
1: the Citizen Kane of armpit-licking movies.
0: Perfect, but again, who's who's keeping track of those? I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I I say that there's probably I, I, I'll search Letterboxd
1: and there'll be some weird. Somebody's got like a top 100 list. Like, whoa, okay, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. That's
0: uh, <laughs> that very much seems like the kind of uh, thing you would find on Letterbox these days. Amazing, James. Uh, so. On to, before we start to wrap things up, there's a, there's a few questions I like to ask that are, are very cruel on my part and I'm, I'm kind of glad that I'm asking them and I'm not answering them. First, first of which being, if you were to keep one couple of family member, but in doing so you get rid of the filmographies of all of the rest of them, who are you keeping?
1: Uh, Keep Francis, and it's, it's no contest. While I love and admire so many of the contributions the rest of the family's made, in the end, it all boils down to Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Conversation and Apocalypse Now. And I think if you want to look at hot streets for filmmakers, directors cool off. Directors get hot, they cool up, they kind of come and go. You're lucky if you get to make any movies. You're even luckier if you get to make one great movie. But if you're able to sustain a certain level of quality for a decade and kind of dominate that's a very rare achievement. And you can make an easy case for Coppola being the most important American director of the 1970s, a period where there's a lot of great American filmmaking going on with like Sam Peckinpah and Robert Altman and Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese and so many great filmmakers from that period. So in the the end, Francis Ford Coppola, I would even say keep Francis Ford Coppola in the 1970s and disregard everything else if I really had to pick and choose. (laughs) Yeah, it's really fascinating.
0: And I do do very much agree with you that 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 kind of like four-film run is nearly unbeatable. Can you think of anyone yeah. else who's kind of had that, like, I don't know, like, I guess, like, people would argue maybe Rob Reiner had, like, a very good run at, like...
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, I grew up on a stuff, man. I, I love Princess <laughs> Bride and I love Stand By Me. I love that period, but Rob Reiner... I think of him more as an actor, and I mean, he directed some damn good movies. But Mm -hmm. Francis Ford Coppola showed us kind of what movies can be, or what directors can aspire to. And yeah, that's it's genuine movie greatness. I would say that you could even make a case for The Godfather as like the great American movie.
0: And it's that thing as well that like behind the camera, whether it's like trying to set up American Zoe trope or like his involvement with George Lucas, that like. Depending on where you fall on like Star Wars and stuff like that, you kind of wouldn't have those. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have that at all if it wasn't kind of like Francis spotting that kind of weedy little kid with glasses and going like, "Hey, you're one of the only other Taking people him under his wing." Yeah, yeah, you're you're the only other person under the age of fifty on this film set. Come here, like, 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 I'll, I'll produce a couple absolutely. Of, yeah, so like, I think the more and more I dig into it, the more I kind of like I'm fascinated and especially like he's one of the best directors that's ever been. <laughs> but at the same time, one of the worst businessmen there has ever been. Like there's this kind that's of totally like... fair. Yeah. I mean the,
1: the documentary that his wife shot uh, heart hearts of darkness, which is about the making of apocalypse. Now, if you want to see a portrait of a mind in a state of disarray, watch hearts of darkness.
0: Yeah. There's this kind of like thing of like, he's just always on the, the brink of bankruptcy and you kind of like you yeah, see complete that complete total
1: catastrophe yeah and he <laughs> says stupid things like oh i always felt like if i spend the money in a really reckless frivolous fashion that i feel like it's going to go further it's like no that's what how a child thinks that's your it's the, the <laughs> truth is the exact opposite <laughs> But that's how your movie went from 10 million dollars to like 44 million dollars in budget in the span of like two years so
0: yeah and I, like i've, I've there's i was reading something recently where they were kind of talking about like it's it's when he's up against the wire like and that thing of like everything falling apart and the pressures on when he seems to have made his like his best work like that kind of in the 70s where it's like nobody believed in him with the godfather and like godfather part two it's like that thing like even he didn't really want to do it and he had that pressure on him to to make a kind of sequel that it kind of became so great and it's yeah when he's kind of relaxing and eating pasta and drinking wine in the 90s and like he's just getting a bucket loads of money thrown at him that his films are no longer interesting yes yeah,
1: success can be ruinous for a great artist <laughs> yes for some
0: <laughs>
1: Other, yeah others
0: it can be uh, a, a firecracker up the ass but um let's let's yeah answer the, the the real question i'm trying to figure out here is are the
1: Coppola's the greatest film family of all time. This is one of the things like who's the greatest fighter of all time. Like, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very debate. It's very debatable, but it's a very fun debate. Yes. And movie history has a lot of good, good ones. Like for me personally, like, the Barrymore's are major and we still have Barrymore's to this day. And they got to start hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. I love the Fondas. They're still going strong. They go back a ways. I can't live without the Marx brothers. In terms of sheer volume and numbers, it's hard to top Harry, Albert, Jack, and Sam Warner. I mean, they created Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers cranked out a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. So the the Warner family, they might always reign supreme, but the Zanucks might say, no, it's us. It's like, you know, Daryl Zanuck and Richard Zanuck and so on and so forth. But if we're going to go down to my personal favorite, my, my personal taste... I'm gonna go with the Houstons. love John Houston, one of my favorite uh, all one all time favorite filmmakers, great writer, great director, great character actor. and he's got the distinction of directing both his father Walter and his daughter Angelica, both to Oscar winning performances and I like that family quite a bit. Their volume is not as big as the Copulas, mm-hmm. and they haven't produced as many giant figures because it's really just Walter. And John and Angelica and maybe Danny, and but there there are a couple of them, but I really love the Houston family and find their whole saga to be absolutely fascinating,
0: yeah, and the only other family to have the free generational uh Oscar win as well, like you'll see the Coppolas the the other yeah, and the the Houstons are the only ones
1: to do it and again yeah, like, the, I think family reunions would be a lot of fun with both <laughs> clans
0: yeah. yeah, and there's 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 definitely some crossover with the whole like. Where's Anderson connection and even we mentioned earlier Gardens of Stone Angelica Houston pops up in that so um I look forward to kind of delving into some of we need to
1: convince the two families to marry together to create the the (laughs) biggest grandest (laughs) filmmaking family extended family of all time
0: I'm trying to think like uh yeah because in in research of this podcast I think the most like kind of Oscar winning family of all time is the newmans so like uh, oh interesting randy yeah randy newman and like his family yeah because his his uncle and his dad were both composers right so like i think gotcha. i think they kind of like sweep up on that because uh i don't know your your production rate can be a lot can be like a lot more and stuff like that uh so they've got they've got a got an easier chance i guess on kind of winning all those oscars um amazing so let's get to a a, a question that yeah i guess is on a lot of people's minds and possibly the reason i'm doing this whole podcast what does bill murray say to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation james
1: now when i saw this question i didn't know if it was like you actually wanted me to get like the right answer or if it's more of like a philosophical question <laughs> and the 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 honest answer is I don't know because uh and i i I could look i will let me know I saw it when it came in the theater. I haven't seen it since it's been almost twenty years, and so I didn't know if even in the movie if the answer's even there, does he whisper it in her ear and we don't hear or what uh i you have to remind me of how the scene unfolds i didn't want to cheat but also i wanted to try and figure out an answer that was like in the spirit of the question
0: There, there is no There, like it's it's filmed like too far away for there to be like for people like ah, all right well
1: then i'm just gonna go with like a cheap easy answer from the bard himself to thine own self be true the uh <laughs> the, the line from Hamlet, because that's i guess a um a cheap Almost kind of like predictable, generic bit of inspirational poetry that I can just pull out of my ass at the, at the drop of a hat. So yeah, that, that that's what I'm going with. Right or wrong?
0: Yeah, I, I kind of what I really like is you mentioned him earlier. Mark Commode, uh always said that he says. Come with me. I've I've just got Garfield, and I'm I'm going to have loads of money. So like that's what he says to Scarlett Hansen at the end of Gar. At the end Very of the nice. Last of that
1: <laughs> no, it reminds me of uh, Bradley Sinellis has a, a film podcast, and at the end of every single podcast, he and ent- asks all of his guests the, the same question: What do you think of the Eagles? And you get a wide range of answers, <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's a great Rorschach test to see where people stand on pop culture and pop culture history. Because I'm be like, I've never heard a song by the Eagles, and other people are like, oh, it's like the you know, best-selling band of all time, blah, blah, blah. And Anyway, you always get a wide range of answers. So I, I'm all for an interesting kind of a gimmick to, to bring uh, an episode to a close.
0: Amazing. Does anyone ever answer that question, like talking
1: about the Philadelphia
0: Eagles, like just totally misinterpreting the question entirely? <laughs> I th-
1: I think... Because most of his guests are filmmakers, they always uh, steer toward, because until you just said it, I mean, it didn't even occur to me. Oh, yeah, the birds, like, you know, like the uh, the, <laughs> the team that everybody loves in Silver Linings Playbook so intensely. Yes, yeah, so I guess all roads lead back to David O. Russell.
0: Perfect. That's it. That feels like a perfect place to cap this episode off. Um, so before I let you go, where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing, whether it's wrong, real, or Geeking with James Hancock and stuff like that?
1: Uh, so I have the podcast Wrong Reel, which is more devoted to film history, and those are long-form <laughs> conversations where we tackle filmographies and things like that, and so you can find that anywhere you find podcasts, and if you were looking for short-form content, my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, is more pop culture and more current... It's, it's more preoccupied with like franchises and things like that, genre storytelling. So if you lean more towards like the Criterion Collection, go to Wrong Reel. If you lean more towards the Marvel Cinematic Universe, go to my YouTube channel. <laughs> but yeah, and on social media, on Twitter, just uh, at Wrong Reel, and you'll find all my content.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much for coming along and. Joining some dots and making some couple of connections with me, James. Well,
1: thank you so much for the invite. I greatly appreciate it, and it's always great to make a make a new connection through the Twitterverse. I, I really appreciate it. It's been great. I've had a blast talking to you.
0: As always, guys, thank you so much for listening and thank you once again to James for coming and joining me. However, he didn't find the Coppola family to be the greatest film family of all time. Maybe I can get him on again and really persuade him next time. If you're a fan of Flirting With Disaster or any of the films that we've talked about, please do be sure to get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, all at CagedInPod, or always catch me by email, which is CagedInPod at gmail.com. As for next week's episode on the podcast, I'll be joined by podcaster, writer, and film journalist Helen O'Hara to talk about the Robert Schwartzman starring The Princess Diaries. As I say every week on this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. So as always, I've been Petrus Patsnivers, your guide through the wonderful world of the Coppola family tree. So make sure you keep it Coppola, and I'll catch you next time. It's family.